Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Nick McArdle. Welcome to the second series of the Playmakers Playbook. It's been almost a year since the last episode of Series 1, yet the struggles caused by COVID and lockdown continue to be very real. Leadership, whether at government level, in the workplace or even at home with the family unit, has never been more important. Once again, I'll be talking to leaders from sport and the industry of sport, searching for those little nuggets of advice to help us navigate the day-to-day. This is the Playmakers Playbook, brought to you by BuildCorp, protecting their people and projects through adaptability and proactive safety. Kerry Chikorovsky is this week's guest on the Playmakers Playbook. She's a passionate advocate for women's sport, in particular rugby, where she's a powerful voice as a board member of the New South Wales Rugby Union. And as the first woman to lead the New South Wales Liberal Party, Kerry understands how tough it is to be a pioneer in your chosen field. Some lessons were learned the hard way, and nowadays she's sharing those lessons with the next generation of politicians, business leaders and athletes. Ash Hewson, the veteran... For the Bill Corp Super W, she's done it! New South Wales have won the Bill Corp Super W in extra time. Ash Hewson hoists the Bill Corp Super W trophy. Skywood and New South Wales are the champions in 2018. What a game that was, the inaugural final of the Bill Corp Super W in 2018. A win to New South Wales in extra time over Queensland. Kerry Chikorovsky, welcome to the Playmakers Playbook. That was a landmark moment in a, a landmark year for women's rugby in Australia. Well, it certainly was because what we're actually seeing in that year was that women can play rugby, you know, <laughs> and not just sevens. They can actually play 15s. And I think that was a revelation to a whole lot of people, including, I might say, some of the uh, people who were involved in the administration of rugby. Uh, there'd been a fairly you know, good acceptance of the sevens game, but the girls playing 15s and playing as well as they did, I think a lot of people went, wow, never thought I'd see that. And it was a perfect finish. That was a very special day. You've um, dedicated many years to the game. You first joined the board of the New South Wales Rugby Union in 2013. Why rugby? Well, it started because Nick Farr-Jones, who's a mate of mine, um, rang me, knowing that I was a mad, passionate rugby supporter, rang me and said, look, um, we need to start thinking about how we can promote women and girls in rugby because at that stage they'd made a decision for the rugby sevens to be included in the Olympics. So that was an opportunity for us to start to say to the world, 
girls can play this game because you know a lot of people don't realize that the only reason rugby got included in the Olympics was because it was played by women as well as men. The IOC had made a decision they weren't going to put in any more team sports unless they were played by both sexes. And so because the girls, and our girls in particular, had been pretty good at it, um, they listened to the presentation and decided rugby would be a go. So as a consequence of that, Nick asked me whether I'd get involved and that's how it started. Yeah, and obviously... Now, what those girls did then in 2016 mm. the, for the game itself was remarkable. Well, my favourite story about that, because I went to Rio, um, I decided I needed to go and support them. My favourite story about that is I have a son who um, had been saying to me, why are you wasting your time with women in rugby? <laughs> girls shouldn't be playing rugby. And while I was at Rio um, during the games, I started getting these series of text messages and they kind of went, oh, these girls really know how to play. Oh, they're pretty skillful. Anyway, by the time we got to the final where we won, as you know, beating the Kiwis, it was, oh, my God, they are amazing. They are so fantastic. You know, I really understand now why you're doing it. And it was. It was an eye-opening moment for him but also for the whole lot of other people around the world and particularly in Australia. Girls could play rugby and really well yeah. and win. Yeah, it was, it was very special. Uh, you've been a huge influence in the women's game, a passionate and influential advocate um, the leap of the women's game has, uh, the, the leap that it's made in recent years, has mirrored that of, I guess, so many sports across Australia and mm. around the world. Been a long time coming. Mm. Um, what's been the difference in these last few years? Why all of a sudden this incredible momentum that women's sport has? Well, I think people are realising that, as I said, you know, 51% of the population, um, <laughs> which is what we are, and they were ignoring the fact that girls wanted to play those games. I mean, girls wanted to play cricket. They wanted to play AFL. They wanted to play rugby. They wanted to play league. And there was this whole, very old-fashioned view that, well, and particularly amongst a lot of parents, I've got to say, Interestingly, I found it along amongst fathers more so than mothers when I first started. Oh, you know, those those are boy games. Mm. They're, they're games that boys play. Yeah, they and should be, the girls should be playing netball, clearly. Yeah, or doing ballet. Yeah. I mean, a number of times I've got told, <laughs> no, well, I really want my daughter to do ballet, not play rugby. I went, well, you know, maybe they can do both. Um, so I think there was, there's been a, a recognition in recent years, and certainly things like the Olympics have, had, have been a big part of it. But there is a recognition that girls should have those opportunities to play those games. And I'm really excited that the professional sports in particular have realised that it's actually good for them as a sport to have 100% of the population interested in their sport, which is what's happened with the including women and girls. And broadcasters, I guess, oh. too. I mean, you know, I guess one thing follows another. Yeah. But the commitment that broadcasters around the world mm -hmm. are showing as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I think, you know, you look at, for example, um, football, soccer, and the, the following that women's football now has on an international scale. And it's terrific. Mm. It's, it's amazing. I have my aspirations that we will have, you know, women's rugby on that same scale at some stage. But, and a lot of that was kicked off by the Americans taking it seriously. I'm delighted that we're now having the Americans take women's rugby seriously as well. And because that gives us a whole bigger audience, particularly amongst that college crowd. So, yeah, I, I'm, I see there's lots of good things happening for women's sport generally and my sport in particular. Yep, the potential is huge. Um, let's wind it all the way back. Leadership was in your blood, really. Um, <laughs> your father, Greg Bartels, was in government uh, at a number of levels. What did you learn about leadership from your dad? <laughs> well, my father was an interesting guy because he, um, he only had daughters. 
So I'm the eldest of four girls and so he used to always joke that, you know, he had to be a feminist uh, because he had no choice really. Um, and I think it was because of both him and my mum, we were brought up to believe we could do anything. You know, there was no, well, boys do this, girls do this in our house. It was always girls can do whatever they want. And I think it was from him um, insisting that we both, we have an education, that we have a career and my mother as well insisting on that. And I also joke that because I was the eldest, I had more responsibility than the others you know, early on. So I think dad and mum taught me to step up, stand up for what I believed in, and from there um, argue with them from the time I could talk <laughs> until, until the day they died. We, we, we've all done that, just, just some have made a career of it. That's yeah, all. that's exactly right. So yes, yeah, so I always joke that you know I was eldest of, of an all-girl um, all family and I was an Aries, so I was kind of born to be a leader, you know, that's what I always joke. Um, so as a family, you spent time in New York when your did. dad was at the UN. Um, what do you remember about that time in the Big Apple? Oh, it was amazing because we left Australia. When we left Australia, dad took us to the old AMP building and said, look, I want you to look around and I want you to remember all of this. And remember, the, there was no opera house then because it was in the 60s. And we arrived in New York at night and we're driving in from JFK and we saw that magnificent skyline. And it was like, you know, kids from Australia. It was just extraordinary. But it was the start of a really interesting journey because I went to the UN school. So I grew up in an in atmosphere where you had every colour, race, creed in the, in the school. But we also had those tensions so that, you know, um, when the Russians invaded Czechoslovakia, all the Russian kids were pulled out of school because mm. their parents were concerned about their safety. Six-day war, the Arab kids and the Jewish kids didn't talk to each other. We lived in New York. I mean, I, I could not go to school on my birthday. My birthday was – actually, it was the day after my birthday. I couldn't go to school. But Martin Luther King was killed on the 4th of April. We couldn't go to school on the 5th because they were rioting in the streets of New York. So I grew up in a – pretty political environment even as a you know a seven to 13 year old it was a political environment and that certainly had a big impact um, on me and you know what happened at the UN was talked about at home so yeah from a very young age Vietnam War was going on all of that was really in my childhood and in my psyche from a very early age. Oh, that's incredible. So you, you're soaking all of that up. And then as I understand it yeah. there was a meeting with Robert Kennedy. Yeah so that was most very, very pivotal moment in my life because what happened was my father, my dad always wanted to go to the beach. Me, not so much. Got you too burnt. But we always had to go to the beach. And to get to the beach um, and get a reasonable parking spot, you had to go really early. So we went to Jones Beach and we're, well, as we're parking, all these big vans arrived with what you'd appreciate, these huge outdoor speakers. Mm. So dad went over and said to the guy, you know, what's going on? And he said, an American said, oh, a serious political figure is coming to give a talk. And we went, oh, okay, who? And he wouldn't tell us. Anyway, so as we, you know, crowd gathered and we wandered back and this car pulled up and it was Robert Kennedy and he got up and he stood on the steps um, at Jones Beach and he, I, to this day, I say, I mean, like I'm 64, so this is a long time ago. <laughs> I can still close my eyes and see him standing on those steps. He was not the most polished speaker. He actually was kind of a little bit crackly in the way he spoke and stuttered a bit. But he had this whole crowd mesmerised. No one made any noise. We are a strong and we are a courageous people. We have much to be thankful for and we have much to be proud. But any who seek to comfort the people rather than to speak plainly, to reassure rather than to instruct, to promise satisfaction 
rather than to reveal frustration. They deny our greatness, and they drain the strength of this country. Anyway, listen to the speech. He came back through the crowd, and we were sort of standing at the bar. They had you know, barriers up, and we were standing at the barrier. And my father, this was 1968, and my father shouts out, um, oh, good on you, mate. <laughs> and, like, there were no Australians in New York at that stage. So, of course, he comes over, and he talks to us. And, um, you know, Dad says to him, look, you know, I'd normally be a Republican, but if I had an opportunity to vote, I'd vote for you. And he turns to me and he says, oh, who's this? And he says, oh, this is my daughter, Kerry. And he shook my hand. He said, oh, lovely to meet you, young lady. And, like, I said to her, I remember I said to other people, I felt as if I'd been touched by God. It was just this amazing moment. Because being a political kid, this was going to be the next president of the mm. United States. That's what we all thought. Anyway... Um, I remember turning to my father and saying, I want to be like that man. I want to be able to do what he just did. And so kind of I say that he was my inspiration for becoming a politician as much as the people who I knew back here, but certainly that moment. Even at the age of, what, 10, 12. 11, 12, 12. So, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I used to tell people that I wanted to be an oceanographer, but I, I don't think, looking back, I even knew what it meant, really. Yeah. I didn't know what that was. But for you, this pull towards politics, even at the age of 12, was very real. Oh, totally. I mean, I remember coming back to Australia when I was 13, and um, I, I went to Monte San Angelo and the, nun, the nuns would say to me, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a politician. I want to be Prime Minister of Australia. And the really interesting thing is that they never dissuaded me from that. They never said to me, oh, no, maybe you should have other aspirations. They just said, OK, fine. And so, yeah, from the time I was 13 and everything I did. So I, I went to university. I did economics and law because I thought that would help me being a politician and understanding legislation in the parliament. So everything was geared to being a politician from 13. So you Not a lot of people that focus. No, so. that's, that's, exa <laughs> that's exactly right. And, and then, you know, not surprisingly, that, that dream comes true. So 1991, uh, you uh, enter state parliament. After all those years of expectation and, and desire, was it what you expected it would be? So I think the moment I walked in and sat down on those green benches, I felt I'd come home. Yeah. I absolutely believed that's where I needed to be and should be. And yeah, I, it was like this, I'd wanted to do this for such a long time and to finally get there was just, yeah, it was, it was right. It felt absolutely right. So you're a minister <laughs> though after 12 months. Oh, so, yeah. this, so this all happens very quickly. Were you ready for that, that cut and thrust and, and sometimes the brutality of politics? Um, I think being a minister was, yeah, that was a huge shock to me. In fact, when John Fay, God bless him, uh, rang me and said, um, look, I'd like you to be the Minister for Consumer Affairs, I suspect I'm the only person who'd ever been offered a ministry and said, are you sure about this? <laughs> and he burst out laughing and he went, yes, I am very sure. And I said, yes, um, because I knew there would be a lot of people who would have their noses out of joint about me only being there 12 months. But I went, okay, well, this is a challenge for me. It also, it amused him entirely because my father had been Commissioner for Consumer Affairs and my uncle had been Commissioner for Consumer Affairs. So I said, there's a bit of family history here. Um, but it, it was a challenge for me because I had gone in very quickly. Um, there were people who thought I didn't deserve it. So I had to actually step up and make it my own. And so I think the proof in the pudding was that um, 12 months later I got promoted. Hmm. So I went from being the 21st you know, lowest ranked minister up to about, I think I was about eight or ten. Was John Howard in your sphere at, at that so point yes. in time? So, yes. So, John, I, give, I credit the two Johns with my political career. John Howard stepped up 
um, with the pre-selection, because you probably won't remember, but what happened was the previous member for Lane Cove resigned on the Tuesday. Nick Griner was calling the election on the Friday and everybody knew that this was pre, you know, set terms. So on the Wednesday night, my Lane Cove conference um, called an emergency meeting and John Howard arrived at the meeting and said, the most important thing you can do is select your candidate because the executive in, uh, in uh, the Liberal Party were actually just going to kind of do a, what they called a paper pre-selection, look at the numbers and look at the papers and decide. But he said, no, you need to have a proper pre-selection. And it was only because they had a proper pre-selection that I had a shot at it because my opposition was already a minister in the government looking to come into the lower house and on the paper I would have lost. But so I credit him. Him, his intervention was uh, gave me the first opportunity to show I could do what I could do, and then John Fay gave me the next opportunity to show that even though I was pretty new and green, I could actually do a good job, and um, yeah, and and actually run a ministry and step up and be a minister. So in terms of mentorship, what were the lessons that you learned from the two Johns? So the first John taught me you've got to have enough confidence in yourself. And it was really funny because um, I actually rang him um, before I did, pre, you know, to talk about my pre-selection speech. And he said, now, Kerry, don't say to them, yeah, we obviously need more women in parliament. Don't say it. He said, it's perfectly obvious you're a woman. But, <laughs> so don't tell them that they need to put more women in, which was really good advice. Um, so he he taught me and um, he gave me the best bit of advice best bit of political advice I think I've ever had and that was after the pre-selection. I rang him and I, you know, what do I do now kind of thing and he said, look, the one thing I can say to you is you need to be able to look yourself in the mirror every day and like what you see and that's all about being true to yourself and in politics that's really important because you've got to stick with what you believe in, um, be honest about yourself and be honest about with the people you're working with. So I think that was really good advice and John Fay, he just said to me, he said, you you have to have the confidence you can do this and I have the confidence you can, you should have it as well. Mm. And so those two gentlemen made me believe I could do the job. Is there something um, about a woman, a woman rather, in a leadership role? Men, men have this, uh, you might term it false bravado. Yeah, I'll have a go at that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll have a crack at that. We'll, we'll be right. Don't know much about it, but we'll work it out along the way. <laughs> uh, whereas... A woman, is she more likely to say, oh, I don't know, I don't, you know I'm not sure. <laughs> so yeah. my favourite story about that is I used to go and talk to women in the public service because we were trying, I was industrial relations minister and we were trying to encourage more women to step up into what we call SCS positions, which is senior executive service. And they would sit at band 12, which was kind of secure employment, but then you'd have to step up to go into SES. So that was... So I remember going to this meeting uh, of all these women and I said to them, you know, why don't you want to step up? And, and, and the reasons were, well, you know, if it says I need a degree, I probably think I need two. If it says I need five years' experience, I think I probably need ten. Mm. So I kind of listened to all this and I said, you know, you really have to be like men. And they went, what do you mean? And I said, well... Go for the interview anyway, because the experience will be really good. So go for the interview anyway. And if at the end of it you don't get the job, take the same attitude the blokes would take. And they looked at me and they said, what do you mean? They said, they'll blame the interview panel. <laughs> they'll say they got it wrong. <laughs> right? Not you. They'll get it wrong. But I said, you need to have the confidence to actually step up. And, and it was interesting because, you know, women... And I think women do that more these days. I mean, because we're talking 20 years ago. Mm. But I think nowadays... There, there isn't that same, oh, well, I'm not sure I can do this job. 
I always say to women, what's the worst that can happen? You know, either a job interview or whatever. The worst that can happen is you're going to fail and you will learn from that anyway. So put yourself out there, take the chance, have a go. Because kind of that's what I did. Mm, mm. Uh, it's it's a, a great lesson and probably one that you could tell to you know teenage boys and girls. Absolutely. You know, they're all a bit sort of loath to, you know, in that first... Uh, blush of, of looking for uh, for jobs and, and career and that sort of thing. And I always say to, and particularly young people, I say, look, every single job you have will teach you something. It mightn't be your ideal job, mm. but every single job. I mean, I remember one of my worst ever jobs was I used to do market research, you know, knocking on people's doors, you know, asking them questions to for a particular company. And I've got to say, it was horrendous, you know, going off to parts of Sydney on a Saturday and Sunday afternoon. But I got paid by the number of responses I got. Mm. So I got really good at talking people into filling in those forms, answering my questions. And I always say it was that kind of engagement, you know, talking to people, drawing them out was huge in politics, really helped me in politics. I loathed it as a job, but it taught me a lot. And I say that to young people. Keep whatever job you do, do it with great passion and enthusiasm because you'll learn from it. But eventually you've got to find the job that really wants, you know, makes you want to get out of bed in the morning, yep. which for me was obviously politics. Something you're passionate about. So in 1998, uh, you become opposition leader in yes, New South Wales. I did. Um, and that, that rough and tumble of the day-to-day in Macquarie Street, I imagine that gets turbocharged when, when you're the boss cocky. Ah, uh, yeah, well, it did. And um, I suppose the, you know, what comes with it is that you're responsible for not only yourself but for the party as well. So um, we had some pretty ordinary times, I think, after that. Um, clearly, the election in 99 was a nadir, to use my new favourite word. Uh, we did very badly in that, and I have no doubt that was because, you know, some of my inexperience. I only became um, the leader like four months beforehand, so that was a bit of a, a learning curve for me. But then I, I had some pretty tough times. I had some tough times with the media. But I also kept on thinking to myself, this is going to get better, and we are going to improve, and we're going to make a difference. And... At the end of the day, that's what I—that's well, what got me out of bed in the morning. Um, you know, there was one particularly horrendous uh, Sunday where I had a phone call on Saturday night from one of my colleagues because she used to get the papers up at King's Cross early, and he'd gone up to get them on Saturday night, and he said um, the headline is "Dead Woman Walking." Mm. So I got out of bed. I've never really—I <laughs> heard the papers land on the front lawn. I raced out, got them, and threw them in the bin because I didn't want the kids to see that, mm. right? But and I went. I remember saying to myself, why am I doing this? And I kept on saying to myself, no, because this will get better and I can make a difference. And I think even though I lost the leadership at the later stage, I know I made a difference for a whole lot of other reasons for a whole lot of people. Was that around about the time that there was an infamous uh, media conference where I think (laughs) members of the, uh, the gallery at State Parliament had basically acted together to try to make you cry yes. in a press conference? Yes. So what happened was I walked, walked into this press conference. I had my press secretary standing at the back and I can't even remember what I'd gone down for, Nick. I just can't remember. But anyway, this went on and on and on. Like it was horrendous what they were doing, right? My, my press secretary's at the back. She's in tears like because she couldn't believe what they were doing to me. Anyway, I walked out and... Um, I went back to my room and I was literally shaking. I went, I don't know what that was all about. 
And my receptionist rang me and she said, there's one of the um, reporters from the gallery wants to come and talk to you. And I went, oh, what the hell do they want to do with me now? <laughs> anyway, it was one of the girls. And she came up and she, um, she said, look, I'm here to apologise. And I went, what for? I said, you weren't doing that. I said, you know, there was these four boys that were doing that. You weren't one of them. She said, no, Carrie. She said, but I'd been in the common room uh, beforehand and they were plotting to make you cry because they wanted to run the story on the evening news that you couldn't cope. Mm. And they are so pissed off that you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and I went, well, thank God for that. So but yeah, but it was, a, they, you know, they wanted to run the, the story that a female leader couldn't cope with the pressure. Your mum, I think, had told you, <laughs> never, never let them see you cry. So when I lost the leadership, um, I, I went down and I had to ring my mother. And I said, look, I've got to go down to a press conference. And she then said to me, don't let them cry. Don't let them see you cry because that, that is how they will remember you, that, you know, you didn't cope with it all. And if you might remember, remember a certain prime minister was crying at his press conference when he lost the leadership. And um, we always joke that that was the image I didn't want to have. So, <laughs> so I walked down to the press conference and, no, I didn't cry because mum had said to me, don't cry, um, be, you know, uh, present strongly and I did and the funniest thing is that 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 it is that press conference that people who'd never had any interest in politics um watched and still remember today they remember they, remember, they say to me you were so gracious and I went well what was I going to do spit the dummy it's not my style but um but I think it actually set me up for a whole lot of other things post because it meant that people knew that I would be gracious that I could be trusted that I wasn't going to be bitter and twisted so people trust me Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today me now I think so I'm looking for some of these little nuggets about leadership and, and things that you've learned and I, I have read where you know looking back on that whole tumultuous time that maybe you didn't lean on oh. people like you probably should have can you just talk a little bit of, about that and and tell us why you didn't at the time so I always say the biggest mistake I ever made in that leadership position was assuming that I could do it without support um didn't trust anyone to, you know, when I was having a bad day, didn't trust anyone to go to and say, look, I'm really having a bad day and I need a cup of tea or a glass of wine. And, and, and I absolutely say that that was my biggest failing because I've subsequently realised that no one in any leadership position is any good at it on their own. They need to have a support group around them. I had fantastic staff. They were amazing, but I couldn't really download to them. I didn't mm. feel as if I could. So the reason I didn't do it, Quite simply, there was no other woman around who'd either been in my position or was in my position at the time. There wasn't someone who I could go to and say, how do you, you, know, how do mm. you cope with this? So there wasn't a female mentor I could go to. And I didn't have the confidence to go to any male mentors because I didn't want them to see me as being weak. Mm. And it is absolutely now clear in my mind by not doing that, that was the greatest weakness I had. Not being able to prepare or being prepared to admit that I wasn't coping. 
do you, do you think that applies in um, in life outside of politics oh. for, for women in powerful jobs and, and in leadership positions? I think that applies to everyone in a leadership position. You know, it's interesting. I've got some really good mates who are um, quite senior in the corporate world who occasionally will ring me and say, let's just go and have a glass of wine or a chat. And it's because they know that they can download to me and there is no judgment from me. It's just, you know... I just need to talk to someone. Mm. And look, it could be as trivial as, look, I just want to get out of the office and talk about rugby or whatever, but I just need to talk to someone because everybody in that leadership position, wherever you are, needs to have someone who they can just download to and confide in and relax with um, because you, if you don't do that, you bottle it all up inside and it starts to talk, you know, torture you. It really does. And so I would lie in bed at night going, oh, my God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And instead of saying, well... Who can I talk to about this? I just think I have to work this out. I have to work this out. And I think everybody in a leadership position needs to be able to go and find those people who are, and, you know, and the reality is they're there. Mm. Everybody who's in a leadership position nowadays wants other people to become really good leaders. So they're more than willing to help. So that's why I always say to people, come and talk to me if you're having a bad day. I actually ring up lots of female politicians on both sides and say here here's my number if you need to talk to someone give me a call yeah just check in do you think that you know a couple of decades on um that it is easier for women in politics now and and maybe they're not held to a different standard like perhaps you were when when you were uh in office <laughs> i say i always say that we'll have true equality in politics when um we finally have mediocre female leaders like we've had mediocre men <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it's changed. It certainly has changed. I mean, for example, um, you know, I used to get these ridiculous stories about I'd had my hair cut or, I'd, you know, where did I buy my clothes and all that sort of stuff. So I think some of that has disappeared. Hopefully it's disappeared. Um, but I still think that there is an expectation that a woman will be, uh, will be better than a bloke. I mm. still think that that's the case. Um, I hope that... Uh, you know, that that doesn't last much longer, but I do think that there is still a greater expectation. What about uh, inside Parliament, the way women are treated? And I know there is that story about um, someone yelling across the chamber (laughs) suggesting you should get a a facelift. A facelift. Has has anybody ever (laughs) told a man in Parliament that they should get a facelift? Well, the great irony about that story was that the bloke who said it um, was no... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> was was no you know he shouldn't have been talking about people needing facelifts he was he looked like an unmade bed I think it's the best for expression I mean he was not what you'd call a beauty that's, um, that's a that's a fairly large field uh, oh my to. god we'll, we'll put it this way this was someone who smoked and drank his entire life so you can imagine how that reflected in his face right <laughs> anyway it was a great irony um, I think that sort of stuff has stopped I don't think there's as many comments now. Um, about, you know, personal, um, you know, hair, eyes, whatever. I think because I think mainly because the community don't wear it anymore. You know, I mean, I remember when um, I got called a delicate little flower by my <laughs> a federal minister and I burst out laughing. But my staff said, oh, go outside and make a comment about it. And of course, it, you know, there was a bit of uproar, um, but nothing like there would be now. Mm. I mean, nowadays, you know, how dare you insult me? How dare you suggest I'm not up for the job? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I, Bob Carr used to insult me all the time, but I don't think he even he would get away with it these days. I think there is an expectation in the community that everybody needs to behave better, and that includes our parliamentary representatives. Mm. And what, what about the challenge to always be on, always yeah. be switched on and, and ready to go? And I've seen this in 
in sport with leaders in sport, captains, particularly of, of national teams, which, you know, they're the leader on the field, they're the chief spokesman off the field, they're always expected to be on show, and it does take its toll. How did you cope with that? Well, I think it's worse now than when I was there because I think the 24-7 thing now is that everyone's got a phone, therefore everyone's mm. a reporter. So I think that's that's much worse. Um, but I did some things, like, I mean, after I, after I became minister, I was in charge of the training agenda. So we had a function for this young New South Wales girl who'd been named Australian Apprentice of the Year. Fantastic young woman. She was a jeweller. So we had this function on a Friday night. Um, she gave a speech. I gave a speech. It was... You know, a fantastic night. It was a beautiful night. I walked into my office on the Monday morning and um, one of my staff who hadn't been at the function said, oh, you had a really good time on Friday night. And I went, yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. Great speeches, great night, you know, all good. No, no, you had a really good time. And I went, what are you talking about? She said, you had three glasses of champagne. And I went, how do you know? And she said, um, someone from the department told me. Mm. And I went... That is the level of scrutiny, particularly for women still, that's the level of scrutiny that you're under as a political leader, right, or as a politician. So one of the things I did was I didn't drink at all after that. So I had 11 years of sobriety. Um, <laughs> I'm ca catching up now. Uh, no. Um, but I did. Sorry, did you see that look in my eyes? <laughs> So, but I mean, because, you know, you are on call all the time. I mean, I, you know, when I was leader, for example, I could get a phone call at 11 o'clock at night from a radio station wanting a grab for the morning. So mm. you had to be on the go, on, constantly on top of it. Um, one of the things I did pride myself on was that I was pretty good at being across a brief. Mm. Uh, and when you were leader, you had to be across everybody's briefs. And when I lost the leadership, one of the nicest comments that came came from, to me from one of my colleagues was, well, two things. One, you managed to always get the shadow cabinet to a consensus position, which I think is really important in leadership. But secondly, you always knew about everybody else's responsibilities because I made it my business to make sure I was across all the significant issues and all those. So I think there, there was a lot of pressure. But I mean, as I said, today it's worse. Uh, my other quick story, my other favourite story was I went out to dinner with a friend of mine on a Wednesday night and I used to call this young yes, man handbag number one because he used to come to functions with me because I was divorced, right? Yeah. So he used to come to functions with me and he was terrific. I would literally leave him at the table and then I would work the room. So I rarely ever actually got to talk to him other than the fact that they're into, from, to and from the function. Anyway, I rang him and said, look, I've got the night off. Let's go and have dinner. So we went up to Crow's Nest to dinner where, not far from where I lived. And we had this tiny little Chinese restaurant. We were having a chat and all that sort of stuff. And that was fun. Great night. I walked into my office the following morning yeah. and um, my, one of my media guys came in and said, who did you have dinner with last night? And I laughed. I said, oh, hand, you know, handbag number one, why? And he said, we've had a phone call from the Daily Telegraph wanting to know who your new boyfriend is. Yeah. And I went, oh, my God. And I said, well, you can tell them it's not. That was the level of scrutiny I was under then. Nowadays, it wouldn't have even got to the following morning. Someone would have taken a photo and said, oh, you know, posted and who's this new boyfriend that carries with so mm. i think the scrutiny is worse now than it was when i was there but it was pretty constant what about culture as well and that's something that you know leaders in teams need to to build uh, i would imagine that'd be quite hard to develop and, and change in a parliamentary situation but but of course you've since transitioned into yeah. business as well how important is is culture for you so culture i think was probably again another one of my failings i probably didn't um, develop a strong enough 
internal culture to stop me being challenged for a leader. I think that's probably self-evident, isn't it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Certainly culture is really important in um, a successful political team. And, you know, John Howard was the classic example at federal level. I think political culture, yes, it can be built and good good leaders do that. In business, it's all important. Um, In sport, Mm. even more important again. and I think that's, you know, a strong winning culture in sport is what wins you championships. And just as we begin to wind down, um, that transition out of uh, political life, something you had coveted, you know, for so long yeah. into the private sector. And, and I think there's a whole piece that needs to be looked at around professional sportsmen and women yep. transitioning in the same way because it's not as easy as a lot of people think. What was that like for you and, and what lessons would you pass on about that? So I think it was a little easier for me because what happened was I had made up my mind I was going to stay. Um, after you know John Brogdon won the leadership, it was 12 months out from the election, I'd made up my mind I was going to stay because I really thought that John was going to need some older, wiser heads mm-hmm. and I was an older, wiser head. Um, but what happened was there was a fairly concerted campaign from within my own side um, I kept getting phone calls from the media, oh, we hear you're leaving, we hear you're leaving. No, 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 I'm staying, I'm staying. Anyway, when I finally got one from the Telegraph um, saying, oh, no, it's definitely, we're told you're definitely leaving, I went, I think I need to think about this. So I went away and I went up, we had a house at the co- up the coast at that stage and I left the kids behind, I left everyone behind and I had a week on a veranda overlooking the water and I did this, you know, why I would stay, why I would leave. And in the end... There were more reasons to leave than to stay. And to be fair, some of that revolved around the kids. I mean, my kids were only seven and five mm. when, I, when I went into parliament. They were now 19 and 17. So they'd grown up with their mother as a politician. Um, Lisa, in particular, found it difficult being a Chikorovsky. She was the older one. Mark wasn't, so that, wasn't that fussed. But they'd had enough of it. And so in the end, I thought, well, I, I think there are more reasons to leave. But I walked out with nothing to go to. Mm. I didn't have a job. I didn't have anything. And I, you know, and I missed the opportunity to do a farewell speech in the parliament because the parliament had already you know, risen for the year. So a lot of that kind of was thrust upon me. Um, but again, my wonderfully wise mother, I rang her and I said, look, I'm thinking of leaving, but I'm terrified because I don't actually have a job to go to. And she said to me, you just need to have enough confidence in yourself that you'll be able to work this out. And I went, okay, pretty good advice. And so that's so I did. So the so the leaving part was very considered. What I did next wasn't so much because I've ended up running a government relations business simply because when I left Parliament, people kept coming to me saying, now look, we need to work with the bureaucracy or we need to do this. And so that's what I'd done as a politician all those years. And so I just kept helping people. And then the third time it happened, a mate said to me, now what do I owe you? And I went, no, 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 this is what I do. And he went, no, 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 Kerry, that's what you did as a politician. Now you can actually charge people for it. And I went, oh, so maybe I can turn this into a business. So I kind of fell into that. Um, and that pays my bills mm. and really enjoy – I work with people on projects that I like, with people I like. And, and I don't – as I say these days, I don't have to work with dickheads. I had enough of that in Parliament. <laughs> so I just – I choose to work with people I like. Um, and that pays my bills. But then I – you know, to the point about – this, this had been my passion. Well, when I lost the leadership, my, you know, Lisa, my, uh, she's a bit, got a fair bit of uh, thought about her, that child, because I took them out to dinner on the Sunday night after losing. 
and I was sitting at the table and I just burst into tears. I couldn't stop crying. And you know, both of them incredibly embarrassed. We're in a restaurant in Crow's Nest and people are looking at this woman <laughs> boiling her eyes out. And she said, why are you so upset? And I said, well, this has been my passion. I've wanted to do this all my life and now it's been taken away from me. And she said to me on that night, she said, well, what you need to do is find something that you're equally passionate about. And she was only, as I said, 19 at the time or 18. And so that was pretty, you know, from her, it was very telling and it was absolutely accurate. So when I left and when I was, you know, got this business going, I had to find something that was going to make me as feel as passionate as I did about that. So that's when I started getting involved in things like I work on, you know, some not-for-profits. Most of the stuff I do now is around kids, so lots of stuff around children and, of course, the Waratahs. Mm -hmm. So I put a whole lot of my passion into those sorts of things these days. And, of course, the fact that I am the most proud grandmother. I have four grandchildren. I love being a grandmother. So that, that keeps me busy. But, yeah, you need to find something you're passionate about. Work is good. Work is great. But working with Adopt Change, you know, changing attitudes towards adoption, you know, working with the Waratahs and, you know, in sport, working on Humpty Dumpty, mm. kids and, you know, kids making sure we get equipment into uh, for ki kids at risk in hospitals, you know, really sort of sick kids, all those sorts of things, they're what fill my time. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a great story. So the natural question to end with, you know, when you reflect on uh, all the lessons you've learned and, um, and I guess that comes from success and failures, if a young Kerry Chikorovsky knocks on your door tomorrow and says, what's your advice? What are your pearls of wisdom? What are a couple of things that you would say? Be prepared to back yourself. Um, don't, don't let all the naysayers around you say that you can't do this because if you... I mean, when I went for that pre-selection, right, um, I was standing against a, a sitting minister, minister of the Crown, successful minister in the government. The, I don't know if you know Louis Garcia. He was the Herald journalist at the time. He rang me um, after the pre-selection and, and I said, how did you get this number? And he said, well, I'd rung the minister who I thought was going to win because I'd already written the story that he'd won. And, I, and he told me he hadn't, you'd won. And I said, then he said he gave me the number. And he said, Kerry, there was no one, no one thought you were going to win that pre-selection. And I've got to say, that's absolutely true. The only person who had, people who had faith in me were my parents, my family, and my then husband. Because Chris said, you know, go, I'm sure you can do this. But if I'd listened to everybody else, I mean, even people who said to me, look, don't put your hand up this time because you'll get the next pre-selection. If I'd listened to all those people, I wouldn't have done what I did. So I always say to young people, you know, it's really trite. Aim for the, sun. You know, aim for the stars, you might land on the moon. That's that you know, terribly trite card you see. Well, that's true. So just, you know, aim high because the worst that you can do is maybe not get as high as you like, but at least you'll have, you know, you have the opportunity to try. So I'd say that. And the second thing I'd say is that you have to find the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning, even when it's really tough, even when it's really hard. You want to find the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning and makes you want to either go to work or to play or to do whatever you do because passion is all important. Passion is all important. And it doesn't matter, as I said, what you do. Do it with passion. You'll love it. You'll learn from it. But find the one thing that when the headline says, dead woman walking you're still going to get up and say, up yours to the media and to everybody else. <laughs> and that is a perfect place to finish. <laughs> Kerry Chikorovsky, thanks for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. My pleasure.
Kerry Chikorovsky on the Playmakers Playbook. Find your passions and you'll never work a day in your life. Good advice. The Playmakers Playbook is brought to you by BuildCorp, where great teams are built on shared values. It's available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Love you to give us a five-star rating too. And word of mouth's important. If you like it, please tell a friend. I'm Nick McCarvel. Join me next time on the Playmakers Playbook. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.